Kirchhoff uh, ordered magnetism. So to study an antiferromagnet, we use the same model. Okay, we were using the Heisenberg model before, which spins to point in any direction, but there's a nearest neighbor interaction that tends to align them. Now, rather than a minus sign in front of J, I have a plus sign. Okay, so I'm still going to consider that J is positive, but I, I put a plus sign here in the Hamiltonian. So to lower the energy, you want to anti-align neighboring spins. That's all I need to capture the physics of an antiferromagnet, which is to say that this model favors one spin being anti-aligned with its neighbor, being anti-aligned with its next neighbor, and so on. Okay, and that's an antiferromagnet. And you know, so we'll think about it in one dimension. You can think about it in two dimensions. You can think about it in three dimensions and higher dimensions. Here uh, is a square lattice in two dimensions, where again every its nearest neighbor interactions are going to be antiferromagnetic. And then, so this guy, if it's up, wants to have down spins around it as its nearest neighbors. And I can look then and find uh, what's called a sublattice if I find all the up spins. So I find all the up spins here in this pattern. I put a blue dot on them so you can see where the sublattice is of up spins. Okay. And then all the down spins form what's called another sublattice. And in an antiferromagnet, of course, one sublattice has one direction of magnetization, the other sublattice has the other direction of magnetization. And what we think of as the order parameter in an antiferromagnet is the difference in the sublattice magnetizations. So I would take all these blue dots and find their magnetization subtract the magnetization of the other lattice. That tells me I have antiferromagnetism. Note that there's no net magnetization in the system. So if I had tried to use the ferromagnetic order parameter, it would fail, okay, because it's not a ferromagnet. So. And in every case where we have an ordered state, we always look for what's the new order parameter. <coughs> so not all lattices can do this. Not all lattices can have an ordered antiferromagnet on them. So if I use this Hamiltonian, where nearest neighbor spins try to anti-align. And I try to put this on a triangular lattice. Here's a piece of a triangular lattice. I run into a problem. In that let's say that I set this spin up. This spin energetically wants to be down. And this spin has a nervous breakdown because it doesn't know which way to point. It should be up or down. So it's frustrated. And as simple of a problem as that looks, okay, solve this Hamiltonian on a triangular lattice, as simple as that sounds, that is a current field of research. It's called geometrically frustrated magnets. That is, you have something in your lattice that frustrates the nearest neighbor interactions. So it's not immediately obvious there what the ground state is. It's not immediately obvious um, what the, the long-range ordered phases would be, if there are any. And people, in fact, have been studying this type of antiferromagnetic Hamiltonian on lattices that frustrate the interactions in hopes of finding what's called a spin liquid. Okay, this is material beyond the course, but I want to give you a sense of how what you're learning in the course connects to current research. Okay? So people have been studying this model on frustrated lattices to look for spin liquids. And a spin liquid okay, is, is something where you have some interactions between the spins, but you won't ever uh, completely order. So it'll remain in, in kind of a liquid-like state as far as the spins are concerned, yet there are still correlations and interactions in the system. So one of the places where this happens is, is pyrochore materials question. Um, so we chose the model antiferromagnets and ferromagnets with this Heisenberg um, right. Hamiltonian, depending on the have minus sign. We use that to capture the physics of what's going on. Is there any like theoretical way to determine whether or not a given material should behave one way or another? Or is it <coughs> 
so here's what you would do to figure out. Um, you can, uh, okay, actually, I think your question is to predict a priori whether a material is going to be ferromagnetic or anti-ferromagnetic. That's difficult. That's difficult. And the reason is that the exact form of the exchange integral depends exponentially on the tails of the wave function. So people do that, like, computationally? Yes. Yes, they try. <laughs> but uh, it's... Uh, difficult because it's a question because it comes down to a question of numerics and and it's numerics that sensitively exponentially depends on some parameter so it's extremely difficult to predict yeah very difficult to predict yeah so in fact what we look for instead is uh, since since there are um, at the phase transition for example there are critical exponents that are characteristic of one model or another Okay. Even though you may not have all the microscopic details correct, this model is enough to capture the physics of an antiferromagnet. So if you have those critical exponents, you, you use this model to describe the material. Okay. <coughs> Sometimes you'll find a material where, in fact, the Heisenberg approximation is not good. Heisenberg means that you allow the spin to point in any direction it wants. Some materials are more like an Ising magnet. And Ising uh, means that the spin is only allowed to point up or down. And that can happen in a material where locally the interactions between electrons are such that, well, it's only going to point up or down. And it doesn't, this is a higher energy state. There's another type of thing that can happen where the in plane is the lowest energy state and up or down is actually a high energy. That's called an XY magnet. So there are different different uh, types, <laughs> but we'll focus on these guys. These are the most common. Okay, Heisenberg ferromagnets and Heisenberg antiferromagnets. Do any other questions? Okay. So we do need a bipartite lattice in order to have a, a simple theory of, of antiferromagnets. Okay, we don't want to study geometrically frustrated magnets. Um, I mean, I could give you homework problems like that, and then if you solved it, we'd publish it, right? So, uh, lattices with simple antiferromagnetism are bipartite. They, they break up into sublattices, just like a checkerboard, okay, where every black has uh, four red squares around it and every red square has four black squares around it. And the nearest neighbors of the reds are only black. The nearest neighbors of the blacks are only reds. Same thing with the antiferromagnetic pattern, okay? There's two types of sublattices here. The upspins create one sublattice, the downspins create another sublattice. So the point is that if you have a lattice that's bipartite like that, it can be broken up to where the nearest neighbors of one sublattice are always on the other sublattice. Then you can easily find uh, a, a good antiferromagnetic ground state called a nail state. So uh, that was two dimensions. In three dimensions, you can also find bipartite lattices. So a cubic lattice can do it. You have to be a little bit sneaky about it. Um, so here, red is upspins, uh, yellow is downspins, and if I start here with a downspin, then each of its nearest neighbors are, well, down here, that'll be up, over here, that'll be up, over here, that'll be up, okay? So now, if I move to this guy, look at its nearest neighbors, each of its nearest neighbors are down, if I move to here, each of its nearest neighbors are up. So I can do this on a, on a cubic lattice, and find a way to, to solve it. Um, the body-centered cubic lattice will do this as well. Body-centered cubic, this is a, always a bit hard to visualize, but look at this 
cube here, which has um, which has the upspins defining that that cube. Okay, and this site right here is in the middle of the yellow cube. Okay, that's the body-centered cubic lattice where you have a cubic structure and in the middle you put another atom, and that can be broken up into two interpenetrating cubic lattices. So if I took this yellow unit cell and repeated it as a cubic lattice, took the uh, red unit cell and repeated it as a cubic lattice, but placed them relative to each other so that one is always the center of the other, that's a bipartite lattice. So the body-centered cubic uh, lattice can become a bipartite lattice, where on one of the cubic sublattices you put upspins, on the other of the cubic sublattices you put downspins. Again, in this picture, this guy is meant to be the center of the yellow cube. Okay. Are there any questions about that? Okay. This one, this is a face-centered cubic lattice, and uh, it's not bipartite. Okay. So there's no simple answer to what an antiferromagnetic Hamiltonian looks like on that lattice. If you have a bipartite lattice, you can use what's called the nail model. This is a, a person, nail. And the first D is supposed to have an, an accent over it, but I'm not going to bother with accents if I'm going from max to PCs and who knows what symbol was going to come out over here, right? So just so you know, the proper way to spell nail is with an accent over the first D. So the nail model for an antiferromagnet is basically means do mean field theory like we've always been doing, but for an antiferromagnet, okay? So in, in the mean field case for an antiferromagnet, what we'll do is zoom in, for example, on the, the A sublattice. Uh, has a net, sorry, let's look here at this one, the, this yellow spin here on the A sublattice, has a net uh, contribution from its neighbors, which are all on the B sublattice, the red sublattice, which is up, okay, a spin on the B sublattice has a net contribution from its neighbors that's down, okay. So in both cases, I can say that there's an effective field on the A sublattice, <coughs> which is due to any external field that's present, that's here, any external field that's present, okay? But there's also a contribution from its neighbors. But if I'm looking at the A sublattice, its neighbors are on the B sublattice, okay? So the effective field on the A sublattice is the external field with a contribution from the effective, uh, sorry, from the magnetization on the other sublattice. Same thing for the B sublattice. There's a contribution from the external field Okay, also a contribution from the other sublattice. Okay. And the total magnetization, um, of course, I just add up the magnetization on. Uh, excuse me. Don't notes. Um, so I want to look at the total magnetization. It's, it's, uh, I just add the two, right? I have the two sublattices, A plus B. But, um, in general, they're in opposite directions. Okay, so these are vectors generally pointing in opposite directions if it's a, an antiferromagnet. And if there's no temperature and no field, I know that in fact they're going to be opposite for a, a bipartite lattice. Okay. So, so it may look appear like some of the signs are not quite correct, but take into account the fact that one magnetization is actually opposite in sign from the other magnetization. Okay, and then you'll see that one of these magnetizations is adding the external field and one is subtracting from it. So if we have, for example, a case where we use a, a spin a half, then uh, we've done this many times. We know that the magnetization then in that case follows a hyperbolic tangent. If I have an effective field 
in that case, okay, think of the, the high temperature phase, for example, the paramagnetic phase. In that case, I can make an approximation. Take this high temperature. This quantity here is small, and I can expand it. Okay, first term is linear in this quantity here. And in that case, uh, what I get out of the, the hyperbolic tangent is, is uh, the Bohr magneton times the effective field divided by kT here, right? Notice that since I'm interested in the magnetization on sublattice A, I need to use the effective field on sublattice A. Okay, that's what came out over here. And all together now, I plug in now the effective field on sublattice A, which is up here, external field minus a contribution from the magnetization on the other sublattice. So the magnetization on sublattice A in mean field theory depends on the magnetization on the other sublattice. why you had to go to H instead of leaving it in terms of B? No, no okay. reason. This is a uh, SI unit. I think if you had stayed in CGS, you could forget the unit. So, rearrange these guys just a little bit. 
Okay, what I'd like to do is take the external field to the right-hand side. Okay, so I'm going to take the external field to the right-hand side and pull, pull this term, pull a magnetization term to the left-hand side. So this first term here, magnetization on sublet A, okay, plus now the contribution from sublet B proportional to the external field divided by temperature. Same thing here, pull this term here for magnetization on sublet A to the left-hand side. It comes here. Okay. So two equations. Uh, two unknowns because we'll consider temperature and external field to be uh, provided for us. So those are the two equations. And if I, for example, add them together, okay, so just add these two together. Here, uh, first term, MA plus MB. Okay, that's here. Here's an MA, there's an MB. Okay, so I added those two together. Second terms, okay, this lambda C over 2T times MB, and a lambda C over 2T times MA, that's here, lambda C over 2T times MA coming from right here to there, okay, lambda C over 2T times MB coming to there, right, and the right hand side is uh, CH over 2T, okay, plus CH over 2T and CH over T, now what we can do is look at uh, total magnetization, okay, total magnetization then uh, is MA plus MB, <coughs> Okay. So to get MA plus MB, I need to divide both sides by this factor, 1 plus lambda C over 2T. So that's what I have here. Okay. I have the original right-hand side, CH over T, divided by this factor, 1 plus lambda C over 2T. That gave me the total magnetization. And just rewrite that a little bit, okay? Take, take everything and uh, uh, divide by temperature everywhere. Okay. Actually, multiply that and divide it by temperature. Then you get a temperature here plus a lambda C over 2. Okay, so why did I do all of that? This is uh, to see what the susceptibility is. And again, this, this high temperature paramagnetic phase where I've applied a field which will tend to impart a net magnetization to the system. Okay, now remember one sublattice is going to be in favor of that and the other sublattice is going to oppose it. So this should have a different type of susceptibility formula from paramagnet, direct paramagnet, and from uh, the ferromagnet. So here's the form, okay, we've, we've derived the net magnetization, okay, and if the field was zero, the net magnetization would be zero, so that's good. This is an anti-ferromagnet. If I apply a field, I can magnetize it a little bit. It's just harder, because it's an, it tends to be anti-ferromagnetic. And the susceptibility, then, is the magnetization divided by the externally applied field, which in this case is the Curie constant divided by the temperature plus Whatever's left over here, I'm declaring to be a new temperature scale, okay? Which has the same units as temperature, so that's fair. And this, in fact, ends up being what's called the nail temperature, or the ordering temperature of the antiferromagnet. So this is the form of the susceptibility in the high temperature disordered phase of the antiferromagnet. And this right here is the temperature at which the antiferromagnet <coughs> orders. Question.
Okay. Now, now something matters, which is the direction of the field relative to the magnetization. Back here in the paramagnetic phase, I didn't have to tell you which way the magnetization was pointing relative to the field. In fact, since it was disordered, when you applied the field, the magnetization was going to appear along that direction. If you go into the ordered phase, okay, so now I have some spin pointing up and some pointing down, and it's ordered and it's broken asymmetry, meaning that the spins are pointing in a particular direction. Now it matters whether I apply the field perpendicular to that direction or parallel to that direction. And you might imagine that if I apply it perpendicular to that direction, spins on the up sublattice are simply going to tend to tilt that direction. Spins on the down sublattice are going to tend to do the same thing. Whereas if I did this the other direction, if I had spins on the up lattice and spins on the down lattice, I'll get a different phenomenon. Spins on the up sublattice, well, they're already aligned if I apply a field that way. Spins on the down sublattice are going to be pretty frustrated by that. So here, below the nail temperature, now I have to worry about the direction of the applied field. So we'll have two terms in the susceptibility. This is the first time we've discussed this. The transverse susceptibility means apply the field perpendicular to the ordering direction. And in this case, it's just going to tilt the spins. So in fact, it doesn't matter how ordered you make the antiferromagnet. Make it as ordered as you want. I can still have a tendency to do this. That is, I can still have a tendency to tilt those spins if I apply a field. Because I can get a weak tilting even in the antiferromagnetic case. So there'll be some finite contribution to this transverse susceptibility even if I go to the fully ordered state at zero temperature. If I have now the field applied in the parallel direction, if I'm here, remember that the magnetization develops continuously. This is a second order phase transition. And here I come back. The magnetization will develop continuously. If I'm in this region where the magnetization is magnetization, what am I plotting here? I'm plotting magnetization on one sublattice. Sorry, I'm plotting the actual order parameter, right? So in fact, a better representation of the actual order parameter would be to subtract m sub b. But it's just as good since it's symmetric to plot one sublattice. So here's the order parameter developing. At the onset of this is t nail, right here, t sub n. And here, when there's a weak sublattice magnetization, that means, well, the up spins aren't quite as up as they could be. They're disordered, right? So when I apply a net field, it can tend to order them. The down spins also are not quite as ordered as they could be. So when I apply a magnetic field this way, it tends to simply disorder them more. But the point is that applying a field has an effect back here. It can do something to that state. It's not fully ordered yet. When I get here, and everything's fully ordered, if the magnetization on one sublattice is saturated, let's say the up sublattice is saturated, applying a field does nothing to that sublattice. It's saturated. What more can it do? It can't do anything more. The other sublattice, if it's fully saturated as well, and the interactions between its nearest neighbors are very strong, applying a weak field, where weak is defined as small compared to the coupling between spins, applying a weak field also won't have an effect. The interactions are far more important at low temperature. So that tells you that then it's actually, if you're applying a transverse field, you can always get some sort of susceptibility. 
coordinates for a magnet. If you're applying a parallel field, okay, it's actually going to depend on temperature quite rapidly. That is, if you're down here at zero temperature in the ordered phase, it's going to be difficult to um, try to magnetize the thing, okay, which means there's, there's little susceptibility to that. Whereas notice okay, that, that as, I, as I approach, as I raise the temperature on the antiquar magnet and the spins fluctuate, as they get certainly beyond this point, okay, when they're in the disordered phase, I can't tell anymore. Okay? So these two curves do have to approach each other as they come to uh, the phase transition point. Any questions about that? Okay, this is a qualitative point here that we're making. There's a, there's a big difference between transverse and parallel susceptibilities in the antiferromagnetic phase. This is the nail temperature. Um, we'll, we'll plot this compared to other susceptibilities. So you've seen now three different types of susceptibilities. Okay. Here, the first one, first one we looked at was the paramagnet. So I just want to compare for you qualitatively what these susceptibilities look like as a function of temperature. Here in the paramagnet, uh, again, susceptibility is always magnetization divided by the external field that's applied. And here we found a Curie law. Okay? So the magnetization, I'm sorry, the susceptibility depended on some constant, the Curie constant, divided by temperature, which meant that this blows up mm -hmm. at zero temperature. Of a paramagnet. Here, in the paramagnetic case, okay, we had a susceptibility that looked a little like a Curie law with a shifted temperature. The temperature was shifted to T minus Tt. Okay, so this was going to tend to blow up at a finite temperature. Okay, and it really does tend to blow up there. Alright. So as you approach the paramagnetic transition, you can see it blowing up. Here, in the antiferromagnet, that's not actually going to happen. Okay. So our antiferromagnet also looks like a Curie law with a shifted temperature, but this temperature is set to blow up at a negative temperature, okay, which you can't reach, okay, but that's how you would tell the form of this. If I wanted to just try to plot this out, I'd be trying to make it blow up back at a negative temperature. Of course, that, that gets cut off by the fact that the transition actually happens. There's a real nail transition here where the susceptibility then uh, becomes uh, directional. Okay, you care about one direction of the susceptibility relative to the other direction. Question? Are you sure that the second order phase transition is a continuous transition? It is continuous. So that's not really a cusp, that's a... Okay, um, continuous is probably a better, a better way to describe things, because it's, it's certainly continuous. Um, if you want to go back to the old language of first order, second order, third order, and all that, we would have to calculate what's the, um, how is the free energy getting a singularity? Getting a singularity in its first derivative, second derivative, third derivative. Let me call it continuous to be safe. So I know it's continuous. Um, but you're worried about exactly what type of singularity is showing up here. So you're right. It's a cusp singularity. It's, it's a continuous transition. Yeah. Any other questions? So just as we talked about the Goldstone mode of a ferromagnet, okay, remember a Goldstone mode happens anytime you've broken a continuous symmetry. So in the ferromagnet, the spins all tended to align in one direction. And then 
We knew, by Goldstone's theorem, since we'd broken a continuous symmetry, there had to be some mode that was the lowest energy excitation in the system, that was collective, okay, that uh, as you took the wavelength of that excitation to infinity, the energy went to zero, which is basically the following game. If you make a collective excitation in the system that's at a finite energy, I can find a lower energy one by doubling the wavelength. Okay, and you repeat that process and you find it that when you write down the dispersion, the frequency of that collective mode has to go to zero at zero wave vector. So that's uh, part of Goldstone's theorem. The other is that you have a Goldstone mode. The other part of Goldstone's theorem is that you have a rigidity in the system. Okay. Um, so here, uh, an antiferromagnet. We did a ferromagnet before, okay, and looked at the spin wave excitations. We also expect spin wave excitations in the antiferromagnet. Okay. They're a little funnier because you have two sublattices now to consider. But we can still solve for the dispersion here of the, the antiferromagnetic spin waves. So uh, here again is the Heisenberg uh, antiferromagnet. It's antiferromagnetic because in these slides, J is positive. Okay. And since this is a plus positive J, to lower the energy, I have to anti-align spins. So let me do the same manipulations we did in the ferromagnetic case, which is consider a one-dimensional chain. Okay. You can generalize this to higher dimensions. You just have to keep, keep track of vectors, uh, but it's a straightforward generalization. So we'll just do a single one-dimensional chain. And this notation here, when you see square brackets like that okay, in solid-state physics, that means nearest neighbors. So sum over all nearest neighbor pairs. Or, for example, if you uh, have a particular lattice, you sum over all bonds on the lattice. Okay. So that's what that means. And in the one-dimensional case, I can transform that integral, sorry, that sum, into a sum over sites, okay, where now I'm going to have S sub n dotted into its neighbor to the right, S sub n plus 1. Question? You know, the two did magically appeared in it from previous slides. Don't worry about the factor of two. Okay, what we, I, I've put in a two here so that we get, at the end of the day, the right <coughs> magnitude of the frequency. Some, for some reason, people tend to put a two here. You can absorb the two into the J, and it won't, won't, affect, won't affect the physics too much at the end of the day. So, yeah, this is inconsistent with my previous slides. Sorry. But the reason the two is now appearing is so that when I get a uh, dispersion at the end of the day, it's what's in your book. Okay. All right. So you can go back to the rest of the slides and put a two in front of them. All right. So what if, what affect the, the basic physics dramatically? So if we define it, if we define the Hamiltonian this way, so the two there. Now, um, here, okay, I'm summing over sites with an S sub n dotted into an S sub n plus one. I can Okay, so these are the same, right? Those two sums are the same. I summed over all nearest neighbor pairs. Here I'm also going to hit all nearest neighbor pairs in the following way. Go to site n and take its right neighbor. Okay, then go to site n plus 1 and take its right neighbor, and so on and so forth. Okay. So here, I've, re I've re recast things a little bit in that I'd like to make things symmetric. Okay, I'd like to know what's the net field on S sub n. Okay, certainly S sub n cares about its right neighbor and its left neighbor. It's the exact same manipulation we did to the ferromagnet. Okay, just rewrite this sum as a sum over all sides. S has been dotted into now its right neighbor and its left neighbor. Now I lost a factor of two. Okay, so, okay. 
I think I'm consistent once I get that factor, this factor of two in there. So now if I define this, okay, as minus a half, and that's a half to get the entire, so I know I'm going to pick up the entire magnetic field on one end. Um, now if I sum over the sites, okay, use of n dot, the effective field on site n, okay, writing these definitions down, then I'm looking for, this is, this is by definition, okay, so really this should have been three lines, right, or defined as. Now, take this as a definition, go back and look over here, and see what the magnetic moment compares to, see what the effective field compares to, okay? So I'm going to define the magnetic moment as usual for a spin, as minus g or magneton s. That's how we always define a magnetic moment. Now, look at whatever's left over, and whatever's left over is defined as the external field. Well, the effective field, sorry. So here's what's left over, okay? What's left over uh, depends on the coupling strength J and depends on the right and left spins. And this is the entire effective field on one uh, magnetic moment. So, in the same way that we looked at spin waves of a ferromagnet, okay, now that we have an ordered state, we have neighboring spins or anti-aligned, if I tilt one a little bit, okay, now it's feeling a field that's not quite parallel with itself. It feels an effective field for its neighbors, not quite parallel. So this guy will tend to uh, process, okay? Which bugs its neighbor, which also starts processing, which bugs its neighbor, which starts processing, and so on. So you can send a wave down of precession, just like we did with the magnet. It's got a slightly different character to it because spins are pointing in different directions. Okay. But we can solve for the dispersion. So the time derivative of a spin, okay, is the torque in that system. So that is, just go back and look at the Hamiltonian here. You take uh, the magnetic moment crossed into the magnetic field. Okay, where again, really keep in mind this is a fictitious magnetic field, right? It's, and if it, it's appearing in the Hamiltonian as an effective field on a magnetic moment. So we'll treat it as a field, and that's how it's appearing in the Hamiltonian, but it's fictitious. It's just due to interactions of, of neighbors. So here, okay, now I can plug in these definitions again to find the torque equations. So I have a mu cross B. Mu, I said the magnetic moment was minus G Bohr magneton times S, so that's right here. Crossed into whatever the field is, okay. So here's the field, 2J over G Bohr magneton times one neighbor spin plus the other neighbor spin. Okay, all together, we get a minus 2J uh, spin on site N, what I'm studying here is the torque on spin in. Okay, so the torque on spin in, and that depends on spin in itself crossed into some of its neighbors. Okay, so this guy right here will have a torque on it depending on cross that vector with its neighbor and with its other nearest neighbor. Okay. Here's that equation that we described in the last page. Okay, the rate of change of time of the spins is going to be minus 2j s sub n crossed into both of these neighbors. But we have two sublattices, right? We have an up sublattice, we have a down sublattice. So this is going to take twice as many equations to solve as the ferromagnet did. Okay? So we'll have to study these, these torque equations separately for the up sublattice and separately for the down sublattice. 
So let me call A the up sublattice. Okay, so all ups go to the A sublattice. And the A sublattice, I'm going to declare to be the even numbers. I can choose that. Okay, that is N was our index of where we are in the spin chain. Okay, I'm going to just declare that if it's, if it's an up spin, I said it was on an even site. The next up spin will be two sides away, which is also an even site. Two sides away is also an even site. So I'm just going to reparametize here so we keep track of where things are. That for the A sublinus, uh, the index N can be represented by two times some integer P. You okay with that? I'm just ensuring that N is even. And I stay on the up, su up sublinus. You have to keep things straight. So looking at this equation here, what I'd like to do is break it up into its components. So here's the X component. Here's the Y component. Why don't I care about the Z component? Throwing out the Z component. Okay. So uh, I am okay. Here's the, the here's where I've set the Z axis. If this is the direction of the antiferromagnet, magnet, I have set the Z axis along the sublattice magnetization. Yes. So I've done that. Now that I've done that, why am I justified in throwing out any contribution from the rate of change of the Z components? Yeah. You're assuming that S sub Z is very large compared to S sub X and S sub Y, and you're just setting it to a constant. Right, right. So I'm making a large uh, S approximation here. I'm saying that, that the sublattice magnetization is so strong, okay, so this is not going to be a great approximation if you're near the critical temperature. But if you're well deep into the ordered phase, I'm going to say the sublattice magnetization is so strong that when this tilts, it only tilts a little bit. So, so the main effect is on the rate of change of Sx and Sy, there's very little effect on S sub Z. And in fact, if I consider that changes to S sub X and S sub Y are first order, changes to S sub Z are second order, and we'll throw them out. Okay. So the underlying assumption here, I should have written down here for you, is that the rate of change of S sub Z is zero. It's going to be held constant throughout the calculation. Okay. So I'll take this equation. Okay and write down then the rate of change of the x components. Okay. So remember how to take cross products. First, first let's just take the minus 2j and write it down in front. Okay. Now I take a cross product where I need s sub n. If I'm interested in the x component, this needs to be y component cross the z components. First serve y components cross the z component minus the z component times the y, times the y components wrote it out so we don't get confused. Here, for the y components, copy down minus 2j. Okay. If I have a y here, I need first a z times x minus x times z. And there's a z times x minus x times z. Okay. Just writing it all out so we can do the bookkeeping. And let me first consider rate of, rate of change of spin on uh, the a sub lattice. So there's up spins. They're on the even numbered sites. So here's a, a zoom in, okay, of one of the even numbered sites. And of course, its nearest neighbor on the right is down, its nearest neighbor on the left is down. And what I've written up here is, in the largest approximation, what I will approximate S sub Z to be. So for this up spin, S sub Z is plus S. For this down spin, S sub Z is minus S. 
where this down has been S sub Z is minus S. Okay. So remember how we did this in the ferromagnetic case. We wrote these equations down, and then in the large S approximation, we went back, and every time we see an S sub Z S Z in these equations, like here, we will look at this diagram okay, and plug in the appropriate plus S or minus S. Okay, because we're assuming that S sub Z is not changing much. So it's still just a matter of bookkeeping. Okay, so look at this equation here, the X component. And this is the right diagram for the upset for considering a spin on the upset lattice. So copy the minus 2J down. Here I have the Y component. And I'm going to keep the Y component because it can change. So I care about it slightly. Here I have the right neighbor and the left neighbor in the Z direction. And here the right neighbor is minus S in the Z direction. The left neighbor is minus S in the Z direction. So it's a minus 2S. It doesn't care. Just plug it in. Carry this minus sign down. Okay. S sub Z on site N is up. So I'll replace S sub Z with plus S. Plus S there. And here's what's left over. The Y components. Okay. Whose time dependence I care about. And we'll keep that in the equations. But... In place of n, I'm putting a 2p. Just keep track that n is, is even. So 2p plus 1 is odd. Here, again, in place of n, I put a 2p. Okay, 2p minus 1 is odd. Any questions so far? Just bookkeeping. Which, if you try to do without much sleep, won't go very well. Do you have a question? No, okay. All right. So the y component, k time dependence, goes exactly in the same way. Copy down the minus 2j. Okay, here, um, here, I've started with the right-hand term. Okay, so Sx, 2b. All right. Now, uh, the z components of the nearest neighbors is down, right? Minus s and minus s. So the minus 2s here times the minus sign is a positive 2s here. Okay, so I got this term right here. Now here was the first term, okay? S sub z on site n was up, so I replaced that with a positive s, and then write the rest of the term down, substituting where I see n a 2p. Okay. So this term came here, this term came here, and did that so it looked more symmetric, okay? So here, where I'm worried about <coughs> y, there's the important, okay, time dependence there, and these are the nearest neighbors. Are there any questions? Okay. Here's the other sublattice. Okay. So the other sublattice, notice all these equations at the top didn't change, but now I want to concentrate on the B sublattice, which is down spins. Ah, shame on me. And no, that's okay. That's okay. Because N, N is now not the same as the last page. N is now at a site 2p plus 1. Okay. So I can use these same equations, but n is 2p plus 1 because I'm looking at downspins. So here, okay, I'm interested in the time dependence of the x component at 2p plus 1, okay, which is downspin. <coughs> copy down the minus 2j, copy down the sy, which n I requested 2p plus 1, so an odd sign. Here, nearest neighbor z uh, on both sides. Okay, so this nearest neighbor Z on the right is plus S. Nearest neighbor Z on the left is plus S. S plus S is 2S. There it goes. Here, 
Okay? The spin itself, at site n, its z component is minus. So I put in here a minus s, minus minus a plus, and then I write down what's left over, plugging in, n is 2p. Okay? 2p here should be 2p plus 2. Let's go back and look. 
know, you're worried about this term, so we're going to plus less. It's kind of in it. It's like, is that going to... No, no. So you still want to do yeah. plus inside. All right, let's see what happens. So here, the y guy, so carry down the minus 2j, okay? This term is going to lead to here. So copy down the sx, and then the z nearest neighbors are plus. Oh, I see. So the minus 2x there. Okay, good. Here we are. All right. What do you want to do next? Other than go home and take a nap. Yeah. Try some solutions. And it's waves. Okay. So we have um, we use this note of two equations. Okay. But we would like to, to try some wave solutions. So the a sum lattice here. Okay, is about the time dependence of S plus on the two P sites. The B sublattice, okay, is about the time dependence of the two P plus one sites. And we'd like to try solutions of the following form. The up sublattice all needs to have the same dependence. Okay, so S plus sub two P, two P is even, that means it's on the up sublattice. So here's the A sublattice, which is the up spins. And we'll try a wave solution. Okay. Now, how do you form the wave solution? Assume there's some amplitude, u, okay, and then forget about it. There's a wave part here, which I've written as e to the i, 2pKa minus omega t. Okay. Minus i omega t, I hope makes sense. That's just a time dependence. If we find a normal mode, by definition, for a normal mode, every spin in the system is precessing at the same frequency. So I'll write this equation for the even spins and for the odd spins, okay? And the frequencies have to be the same because it's a normal mode, okay? If this doesn't work, then I didn't find a normal mode. The amplitudes on the two sublattices don't have to be the same. In fact, if you, um, if you assume they are the same, you can't solve the equations. It turns out that, in fact, the amplitude of precession on one sublattice will be larger than the amplitude on the other sublattice. We won't prove that, but that happens to be the case. But you can leave these uh, amplitudes ambiguous. So here, on the even sublattice, I had an e to the i 2pKa. Okay? So the k is, of course, the wave vector. 2 times p times a is the distance along the chain, right? 2p was n, so it tells me what side I'm at. Times a makes this now in units of distance. I needed a k times an a to get uh, something unitless up there in the exponent. And we usually have here an e to the i nka. So here n is 2p. That's all we put in. 2p I put in. Same thing here, except on this sublattice, n is 2p plus 1. So in place of the e to the i nka, put a 2p plus 1 in place of the n. That's how I formed them. Question? I assume that the 2 should be inside the parenthesis there. Are you sure? Yes. Two be. Yes, it should be. Thank you move this bracket here out there. Right. So it's a 2p plus a 1. Thanks. Okay. So here's the trial solutions. All you have to do is carefully plug the trial solutions into the time-dependent equations for torque. So try solutions of these forms. You know, this would be hard if you didn't already know the answer, right? Anyway, we know it's a normal mode, right? We know it's a normal mode. We need to find a Goldstone mode. 
So we know we can assume the same frequency for each one, okay? And that if it's if it's uh, we have blocks theorem in the system, we can parameterize things in terms of k. Okay. So really, you didn't have a whole lot of choice here. So try solutions of this form. Here on the A sublattice, that's this equation, okay? Time dependence now of the two P sublattice here, okay? So U comes, U is just there, okay? Time dependence of this is going to pull down to minus I omega, okay? Minus I omega for the time derivative. Notice I've already canceled off the E to the I, 2 P K A minus omega T, because it's going to appear in every term. Okay, so just keep that in mind. I threw those away already. Here, okay, on the right-hand side, the minus 2Js times i, just copy that down. Now come inside the bracket, 2, copy that down. Now I'm looking at the S plus at the 2P sign, so I just write this straight down as a U, and this exponent, I cancel. Here, move on. Now I'm on the odd sublattice, okay? So for this guy here, I copy this equation down. There's a V. There is this long E to the i, okay, 2P plus 1Ka minus omega T. Most of it canceled because I've canceled the e to the i 2pKa minus omega t. One thing left over, which is here. Okay, which is the e to the i Ka. There it is, e to the i Ka. Okay. Move on to the next one, 2p minus 1. Okay. So look here and pretend we had a 2p minus 1. And again, the v gets copied straight down. Copy the exponential, but this should have been a minus 1 okay, in this term. Everything in the exponential cancels except for the e to the minus i ka, which is right here. That's the a sublattice. Okay. And similarly for the b sublattice. Okay. So do the same stuff for this equation here on the b sublattice. Cancel the exponential terms. Okay. Now, what happens here? We have v's, okay, which are amplitudes that we left ambiguous. We have u's running around that are amplitudes that we left ambiguous. Okay. One way to solve this set of equations is to set v equal to u equal to zero. Right? That's a solution. It's trivial. Didn't tell you anything. Right? It just means nothing's happening. Okay? We'd like something to happen. And for something to happen, what you have to do with this uh, equation here is set of equations, sorry, is uh, pull the u okay, over to the other side. Make this a home. It is a homogeneous set of equations. That is, if I took this term to the other side, right hand side depends on u, depends on v, left hand side is zero. If I pull this to the other side, okay, combine this v term with that v term, have a term with v, a term with u, left hand side is zero. Okay, so it's a homogeneous set of two equations with two unknowns, v and u. If I want a solution that that's not the trivial solution, the requirement is that once I've done that manipulation, look at the coefficient of u, copy it down into matrix, okay, look at the coefficient of v, copy that down into a matrix. Same thing for the top equation, and the determinant of that matrix needs to be zero. We're going to solve this equation, okay? Just standard linear algebra. And so, in this case, okay, so what I need to have happen here uh, is I need to gather here, you're gathering the u terms, okay? So you gather these u terms. I have a 2 times a 2, okay? Which is a 4, j, s, um, let's cross off a minus i, okay? Here, take this to the other side. I have a minus, minus i, omega u, okay? Cross off one of the minus i's, I get a minus omega, okay? Just a manipulation there. What's left over here, right? E to the i, k, a plus e to the minus i, k, a is a cosine. 
the two cosines, there's a two times a two js gives me a four js. Okay, now I was crossing off the minus i. Minus i out the front here. Same thing for the other equation. Okay, gather up the terms, write down this was about the u component, so this one also needs to be about the coefficients of u. Coefficients of u in this equation, well, we'll have a two cosine here. Okay, so this cosine. Two times two is four, js, okay, and so on. So, Now I take the determinant of this equation, set it to zero. The reason we do that is that's the requirement for non-trivial solutions. That's the constraint on the frequencies if I want to have non-trivial solutions. So multiply these two together, subtract uh, those two, multiply together. So how many manipulations at once? Let's see here. We're going to get 4JS squared minus omega squared. Okay. Then minus you're going to get the quadratic. Yeah. We'll just never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind. Ignore what I said. No, well, I did the quadratic. No, it is. No, ignore it. It is a quadratic, but I, I skipped too many steps. I shouldn't skip any steps. Okay, so let's take the, the determinant of that matrix. So I'll get a 4JS minus omega times a 4JS plus omega. Okay, it's just a diagonal term minus the other terms of 4JS squared cosine squared equals 0. So 4JS squared cross terms cancel minus omega squared minus 4JS squared cross terms squared equals zero. Okay. So now omega squared, take the omega squared to the other side, right? So omega squared equals this, right? Okay. Now I can take square root of both sides. So omega squared is stuff on the right. So square root of both sides, square root of 4JS squared is 4JS. Okay, this guy, 1 minus cosine squared is a sine squared. Now take the square root of the sine squared and need to put on absolute values. Okay, the sine can go negative, but this is a dispersion. Okay, so we're caring about finite energy excitations that can happen in the system. So we know they have to be uh, positive frequency. There are technically negative frequency solutions, but they're unphysical. So there's the answer. Okay, that was a lot of work. Okay, but that's the dispersion of an antiferromagnet. Okay, and so again, here's the answer. Okay, we got that it's the absolute value of sine Ka. Okay, so if I take the wave vector back to zero, sine of zero is zero. Okay, it comes up like a sine, comes back down again. Okay. If I plug in uh, sine of pi, right, it's also zero. So this comes back down again here. Okay. So we found the Goldstone mode. Okay, we know it's a Goldstone mode because it's Goldstone theorem. We knew you needed to find um, some mode that was going to go to zero frequency. And uh, here's the question: Is where where did you expect this dispersion to touch to zero? In the phonon case. Right? Do you remember, remember the phonon case? Do you remember where the dispersion, what I mean, touched to zero, coming down to zero frequency? Where in case space did the dispersion touch zero frequency? Zero was one of them. And then the other case spaces were? Center. Definitely center. Okay. Yeah. 
play two pies running around. What did you call them? Reciprocal lattice vectors. Yeah, the reciprocal lattice vectors of uh, the crystal were where the dispersion touched down. Okay. So the goldstone, goldstone modes will always do that. They'll always touch zero frequency after reciprocal lattice vectors. So for the phonon case, um, this came up in, and was finite at pi over a. Because in the phonon case, it wasn't supposed to touch zero again until it hit 2 pi over a. Okay. So why, why did this happen here? I, I get a different answer. Sublattices. Okay, good. What about the sublattices? What's the unit cell in this case? Well, the, the a between each lattice point now where it needs to go to zero is going to be half of what the a in the original lattice is because we divided it. Okay, right. There's a factor of two. Okay, so there's a factor of two running around here. So, um, reciprocal lattice vectors of the magnetic Bravais lattice. Okay, so the Bravais lattice of the, the magnetism. So we were working with an antiferromagnet of, of where this distance here was A. Okay. So what I need to do to find the reciprocal lattice vectors is find the Bravais lattice of the magnetic texture. First, I have to identify the unit cell. Here's the unit cell. Okay. And so here's the unit cell. And the unit cell size is 2a. Right, so the reciprocal lattice vector is going to be 2 pi over 2a. An integer. So pi over a times an integer, and the first one is a pi over a. So this guy has to touch down a pi over a. And it'll just repeat itself and touch down at all multiples of pi over a. Okay. But Goldstone's theorem would have told you that, actually. <coughs> okay. So we did a lot of work to derive the actual dispersion here. So we've proven, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that in the antiferromagnetic Heisenberg model, that's the dispersion of uh, the low energy elementary excitations. Okay. But Goldstone's theorem would have told you that at the outset. Okay. Goldstone's theorem required that you had some mode that went to zero frequency, okay, and that had to touch down at reciprocal lattice vectors again. So you knew it needed to do this, okay. Um, Any questions? Yeah. Is this for all punctures in the antiferromagnetic magnetic, antiferromagnet, or is this only for above the needle? Low temperatures. Low temperatures. So we can only use Goldstone's theorem if we've broken a symmetry. And you break the symmetry in the low temperature ordered state. The high temperature state is disordered and doesn't break any symmetries. The low temperature state is the antiferromagnet, where the antiferromagnet has had to, has had to choose a direction in space. Okay. And then we're looking at the spin waves of the ordered states, which look kind of like this. Okay, the nail punctures a temperature at which the antiferromagnet orders. That's right. So less than that. Less than that. Okay. And in fact, we made a large S approximation, so you probably want to be pretty deep into the ordered state. I would question this approximation if you're just below the nail temperature. I would go maybe a tenth of the nail temperature. Yeah. 
There was a question back here. You got it. All right. Well, I'm confused, but I don't know how to ask a question right now. So. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Any other questions? All right. See you on Thursday. Remember, there's homework to Okay. Uh, do you have your standard help center hours today? Your standard help center hours today and tomorrow? Okay. Well, was there something about a room? Okay, but wasn't Professor, wasn't there an issue? Oh, he rescheduled the room. He rescheduled his end. Okay. Okay. Oh, I wasn't talking about the TA. I was talking about that. Last week, the secretary of Professor Hirsch came in and said that she needed the room at a certain time. Okay. Okay, that's fine. Okay, thanks.